Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode number 93 of the Draft Analysts, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and joining me, as always, is Tony Pauline, as we are now officially through week nine of the 2019 college football season. But the biggest news right now isn't really on the field, as the NCAA has finally agreed to allow players to benefit financially from their name, image, and likeness about a month after California passed the law allowing athletes to get paid endorsements and hire agents. Now we talked about this on a prior episode last year so I know already that you're a fan of this Tony but what do you think of the idea finally coming to full fruition? I I think once again the NC2A is just late uh, to the party or or, or late and basically is is reacting rather than acting. We saw this you know with the whole Penn State tragedy uh, the legal system played out, and then the NC2A came in with all these sanctions and these penalties and everything. Uh, you know, a couple of things. I, I was very vocal about it last year when people primarily were talking about expanding the playoff system. And I said, you know, you can expand this playoff system. Uh, the NCAA and the schools are going to make untold millions upon millions of dollars by the expansion, and these kids are going to get nothing and put their next-level careers in jeopardy. Um, you know, there have been a lot of lawsuits recently from uh, college players about transfer rules, about not getting paid, about uh, concussions. There was a book in 2016 written by Joe Nacera and Rob Strauss called Indentured, the Inside Story of the Rebellion Against the NC2A, uh, about the, how this is such huge business, $13 billion a year, and everybody is getting rich except for the players. I don't think the players should get paid. But, you know, when the schools are selling jerseys that the players are wearing, you know, when the, when the school is, you know, is using the players for promo purposes to sell tickets, et cetera, why shouldn't the players be able to go out there and do an autograph session where they're getting paid for it or do some other promotion where they're using themselves and, and what they've built themselves into to get paid. I, I, I think that it, it's, it's wrong that it hasn't, you know, you, you go back, you look at, you remember AJ green. I mean, AJ green, if you remember, sold his Jersey while he was at Georgia, it was a big no, no. He was suspended for like three or four games. There have been other instances where players have sold their own personal property, which happened to be team oriented rings and things like that. And they're not allowed to do that. And they get suspended. I, I think it's a, it's a joke. And I think in this situation, California set the bar with their legislation, and I just think the NC2A, once again, is just coming in here late so they don't look you know, as foolish as they have in the past couple of years. Yeah, more or less, California really forced the issue here because the NCAA, if they're not able to have some sort of global standard, and part of this release did say that each division, Division One, Division Two, and Division Three, they're all going to have to come up with their own rules. So this is just kind of paving the way But what really paved the way was the California legislation, because if one state is going to allow it, how can you possibly have things going on in the other 49 states or fewer than 49 states if other states were to do something similar, which there was a lot of momentum towards uh, in certain states? I don't remember which ones exactly, but 
you have to understand here that this is a multi-billion dollar business, as you said, and these players, not that they should get paid for what they're doing on the field, not that there should be a salary system where there's contracts or you know, the richest teams are going to get the recruits because they're going to pay them the most. No, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is if your image is being used, if your jersey is being sold, whatever it is, you can get something from that because in the end, otherwise you're getting used. It's a, it's a form of indentured servitude, and that's really just not right. Obviously, the NCAA is late to this, but they kind of are taking a cue from the NFL, who seems to be very late with things. You know, I'll use the example of uh, domestic violence. I'll use the Ray Rice example. He didn't get any punishment. Video comes out, and all of a sudden, they're forced to react, kind of like here. The NCAA knows that this is an issue. They put it on the back burner. They pretty much didn't care until somebody else came and made it an issue. California made it a law, just like Ray Rice was caught on video. And then that forced the NCAA and the NFL, respectively, to act. I think it's different in the sense that, you know, Ray, Ray Rice was a situation where it could have been a legal issue. But the NC2A is the one that have been raking in the box. You know, the NC2A is the one that ha has been profiting, uh, as well as the schools, you know, hand over fist. So, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say it behooves them to come to the party late because they've always done it. But, you know, just get to your, back to your point. You know, I, I'm sure, and I'm not in, in Greenville, South Carolina much, but I'm sure that there are a ton of number 16 jerseys that are being sold in Clemson because everyone wants to wear Trevor Lawrence's number. You, you know, a lot of times these schools uh, don't sell the jerseys uh, with the names on them. But everyone's buying a number 16 jersey in Clemson because they want to, you know, wear Trevor Lawrence's jersey or, or some other player's jersey. There is a, a, a interesting uh, uh, dynamic that takes place at the Senior Bowl that no one ever talks about. And what happens is it's especially on weigh-in day. And what goes on is when you go from the main hotel to the conference center where the weigh-ins are, there are always hordes of people out there who have all this memorabilia, helmets, pictures of players, everything you can imagine. And they're also stand outside each of the practices and they're waiting for, to, you know, to get the players who are at the senior bowl to sign the small football helmets or the bigger football helmets or a picture of themselves or whatever. And they're not doing it for their own personal collection. They're doing it because they're going to sell it on the internet or they have a memorabilia shop and they want this highly rated or, you know, highly thought of more than famous player who's at the senior bowl. They want to get his autograph on a picture or on a football helmet, you know, so they could sell online on the shop they have, or if they have a shop in a, in a, in a mall, the malls are dying lately. And this happens every year at the senior bowl. So if it's happening at the senior bowl, it's got to be even worse on the uh, on the college campuses or you know outside games and things like that where these guys are trying to get, get this memorabilia stuff to sell. So why shouldn't the players you know benefit off of their fame, off of their name? And it's a struggle for some of these coaches to realize it too. Speaking of business and speaking of people that make a lot of money, I mean Dabo Sweeney came out and said that he might retire from coaching or quit the industry entirely if players end up getting paid. And I, I mean, how much money? Does Dabo Sweeney make? Why does he need to prevent his student athletes from receiving money for their likeness? This isn't payment. This isn't saying that the 60th man on the roster is going to make X amount of money. It's not that. This is when the school uses your name or your image or your number, whatever it is, you get 
royalties from it, essentially. You get paid for that. And I don't see the problem with it. And I just don't understand how some of these coaches, in a very hypocritical sense, don't see it either. Utterly hypocritical. You know, I like Dabo Sweeney. He's a good coach. He's a good guy. But, you know, I'd like to see what Dabo Sweeney makes in speaking fees, <laughs> okay, from going around the, around the nation. Now you, you turn on the TV in college football, and you always see Nick Saban doing commercials, you know, for Aflac. You, you know, so it's okay for the coaches to make money off of their celebrity, off of their image, whether it be speaking fees, whether it be commercials. And I'm sure that uh, Dabo Sweeney has got a ton of endorsements in the Clemson area, in the Greenville, South Carolina area with car dealerships and things like that, where he makes money off. I remember listening to Bobby Bowden whenever I used to go down to, to uh, Tallahassee to, uh, uh, to scout Florida State games, Bobby Bowden was doing commercial after commercial. And of course, he's getting paid for it. So, you know, if Dabble Sweeney feels that way, that's fine. Then Dabble Sweeney should not do any sort of endorsements or anything like that to bring in extra income for himself. Absolutely. And, and we could go on about this forever, but we do have a podcast to get to. We'll get to it shortly. But I wanted to touch on one last thing, because in response to this legislation, North Carolina Senator Richard Burr said that athletes who do receive endorsements should then have their scholarships taxed. It seems like a slippery slope to me probably some unintended consequences and loopholes that are going to need closing throughout the years here. But are you really going to go and tax a scholarship just because a student athlete is receiving an endorsement? Doesn't that actually cost them money in a certain situation? You know, to me, this is a case as usual where, where politicians are opening their mouths and grandstanding when they have no clue what they're talking about. You want to tax uh, the scholarships? Well, <laughs> look at how much of the revenue that these schools receive uh, whether it be from television contracts, sponsorships, or whatever, that is received tax-free, that, that they don't pay taxes on because the school is a not-for-profit organization. So, you know, if, if you want to start taxing the players on the scholarships, well, let's look at what the schools are receiving in sponsorships, in network deals, et cetera, where they're not taxed because it's a non-profit organization. I, I watched Mitt Romney uh, on ESPN, he was talking to Jeremy Schapp, who was questioning about it. And Mitt Romney sounded like a, a total bozo. I, I mean, he really did. He, he said about, you know, players getting endorsements and things like that. He said, you don't want a situation where you have a few athletes driving around on campus in Ferraris while everyone else is having a hard time trying to make ends meet. You're going to tell me that uh, star athletes driving around in really expensive, really nice cars on campus has never happened before. <laughs> I mean, is it all of a sudden this whole endorsement thing is going to start where, uh, where, where the, the top athletes uh, in that college in football or basketball are all of a sudden going to show up in, in, in nice cars that hasn't happened in the past. I can tell you what happened with the St. John's team back in the eighties with, with Chris Mullen and guys like that driving around in great cars. That's always going on. Uh, Shop goes on to say, you can't have a situation where some schools who are in major markets and have big sports followings, where some schools are like the honeypot and all the great athletes want to go to those schools. Then you kill collegiate sports. I, I mean, what, what is Mitt Romney talking about? Do football players in Alabama, do they want to go to Troy or do they want to go to Alabama? 
They all want to go to Alabama, and Alabama always gets the best players. That's why they're always competing for the national championship. In South Carolina, do players want to go to Furman, or do they want to go to Clemson? Of course they want to go to Clemson before all of this happened. And they're not getting paid. They're not able to use their, uh, their celebrity or, or, or their name for endorsements, but they still want to go to Clemson. I, I mean, it, it's utterly ridiculous what you're hearing from a lot of these politicians who really should just shut their mouths and do something for the benefit of the American people. The fact is, is, you know what? North Dakota State, the players in North Dakota State will be able to, to make some money off of their names, whether it be through autograph signings or, or giving speeches and talks like that. The players in Oregon at Oregon State, as bad as the Oregon State uh, program has been, will be able to do the same thing with their boosters. Uh, you know, it's not going to be the same way it is in Alabama. But everyone will be able to get a piece of the pie because college sports teams, there's such an emotional attachment to it. Everybody gets all excited. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not the same thing as it is with the pros. So it, it's not like everyone's going to converge to Alabama because they think that if they go to Alabama, they'll be, be able to make the most money off of their name. You know, all the top players want to go to Alabama anyway because it's the number one program. Granted, you got guys who are going to say, I'm not going to go to Alabama because if I go there, I'm not going to get on the field. I'm not going to see a lot of playing time. So maybe I'll go to Arizona. Maybe I'll go to USC. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll go someplace else. You know, what you said about Richard Burr, I, I watched what Mitt Romney said today. They're better off just shutting their mouths because in the end, I think they're making fools of themselves. I mean, if you don't know what you're talking about, don't say anything. It's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt as the old expression goes. And a lot of people just come in with tone deaf responses and things that, don't actually make any sense in the scope of what's happening. And it's very much a projection that they're doing and they're projecting something that really isn't true and all they're doing is currying favor against something that in the end is a positive. I mean, like, again, Mitt Romney saying you don't want a situation where you have a few athletes driving around on campus and Ferraris. That's going on for decades where your top basketball players, your top football players are somehow driving around in really nice cars on campus uh, and, and people turn a blind eye to it. It, it. This whole endorsement thing and players being able to, to make money off of their names isn't going to start that because guess what, Mitt? It's going on for about 30, 40 years already. Now, we will get back to the gridiron here. Looking at the college football landscape as a whole, for the second straight week, a top 10 team fell. And that was Oklahoma losing at Kansas State. But it wasn't just one top 10 team that lost this week. Another was Notre Dame, who got smacked at Michigan, 45-14. It was some rainy and inclement weather that really limited the passing game. But Michigan went ahead and rushed for 303 yards. The teams combined for 267 passing yards. So that tells you all you need to know about the conditions. But anytime you rush for 300 yards, the offensive line is going to be a big part of it. And this game was no different. The Wolverines' interior offensive line is an excellent group. I was very impressed with center Cesar Ruiz, really good player in motion, gets to the second level with ease. He's very useful on poles. Guards Ben Bredesen and Michael Onwenu also played well. All these guys are potential mid-round picks. Tony, what did you see here from them? Well, first thing is I, I think the improvement of the Michigan Wolverine offensive line has been probably the, the, the biggest reason for their resurgence. As far as Ruiz is concerned, he was a riser this week, week nine riser uh, in my weekly piece at uh, Pro Football Network. And he was someone who probably about three weeks ago, uh, when I was talking about centers with uh, a couple different people, there are some people who like Cesar Ruiz as, as a next level prospect better than Tyler Biadez, who 
has been my number one center for the last two years. I think the consensus is he's the number one center will be the first center selected. That's not the, that's not what all scouts believe. A lot of, a lot of guys, these guys like Cesar Ruiz and he showed why in that Notre Dame game, he's been good all year, but that Notre Dame game, I mean, he is strong. He is explosive in miserable conditions, getting out to the second level and annihilating linebackers. I mean, he's more than a small area guy. He's very strong in the small area, but he can get out on the second level, take out linebackers, can block in motion. Uh, I, I think Cesar Ruiz, for a lot of scouts, is either the number one or number two center on their board. Now we'll move on and look at some skill players here. Numbers weren't great for Notre Dame wide receiver Chase Claypool. Two catches for 42 yards, but he did have some nice moments. Keep in mind, again, that the Notre Dame quarterbacks went 11 for 29 for 139 yards. Ian Book got replaced at one point. He was so bad. So there wasn't much doing in the passing game. But Claypool continues to show out. Six foot four and a half, 230 pounds. Moves well for that size. Nobody's going to say that he's fast or particularly quick. He's almost a move tight end at that size. But he consistently wins back shoulder and contested balls. His great concentration and body control really strong hands. He wins in one way, but when he does it week in and week out, he'd probably be a guy who would get more attention if he had a quarterback throwing him the football who is capable of trusting and making those throws and able to make him put up some better numbers. Yeah, I mean, he came into the uh, season graded uh, as early as a early fourth round, potential late third round pick by scouts. His production is very spotty and his production is very inconsistent, but when he's on, he can be a game controlling receiver. You know, Miles Boykin had decent production at Notre Dame, didn't have great production, then went on to have a great combine, which is really what pushed him into the second day. I agree with you about Claypool. You know, that's not going to happen. I presently right now have him graded as a uh, early fifth, late fourth round choice. And it may be a situation where he's a little bit too big uh, to play receiver where if he comes in uh, at the combine or, or the senior bowl, if he's invited to the senior bowl and he's weighing about 230 pounds, teams may start to look at him as sort of a move tight end, as you mentioned. Now we looked at Maryland at Minnesota on last week's show. We were focusing on Minnesota's wide receivers against a Terp secondary that was missing cornerback Tino Ellis, who's out for the season with an upper body injury. But in this game, the Gophers attacked on the ground, 321 yards rushing for the team. Rodney Smith had 17 carries, 103 yards, and one touchdown. Smith's a player we've discussed before. He missed most of the 2018 season with a knee injury, really back with a vengeance this season, third in the Big Ten in rushing. The explosiveness is still there from his pre-injury days, his great quickness and burst. He's also capable of dragging defenders, finishes runs strong. He's 5'11", 205 pounds, so he's a bit lean, and he runs a bit upright as well, but still having a great season. What is Smith's draft stock looking like right now, showing that he's fully healthy, Tony? Well, he's showing he's fully healthy on the field, but they're going to want to check it during combine interviews and it's uh, combine medicals. And it's good to see. I mean, because I had Smith highly rated after the 2017 season, which was his junior season, 977 yards as a junior in 2017, 1,150 yards as a sophomore in 2016, and he was a terrific back. He was a creative back. He ran hard on the inside. I thought he would be a very good situational ball carrier out of the next level. Really hasn't had too much pass-catching production this year, but as a uh, sophomore in 2016 and the following year in 2017, caught the ball very well, and it was thrown to him a good number of times. Came into the season, some scouts thought seventh round, some thought priority free agent. I had a priority free agent grade on him. He's obviously, I think, has – 
played much better than anybody expected. I mean, Muhammad Ibrahim, who was a terrific uh, ball carrier and really picked up the slack uh, for Minnesota last year, a guy who I think is a draftable prospect. He's taking a back seat because uh, Smith has done so well. I-, I think a lot will depend on postseason testing and especially the MRIs on that knee and what scouts see. I could absolutely see him falling into the late rounds of the draft. Now, looking quickly at the receivers we previewed, not a big game really from anybody. That's going to happen when you only throw the football 22 times. But Tyler Johnson did have four catches for 37 yards and a touchdown. Chris Ottman-Bell, a season-high four catches, 456 yards. Johnson, when you watch him, he's a natural receiver, a very good route runner, but he's a bit of a limited athlete, doesn't have that explosiveness out of his breaks to create separation. Rather, he does it with guile and strictly route running chops, but he does consistently find ways to get open. Now, Ottman Bell is a guy that we talked about taking a back seat on last week's show, more of the third receiver in this offense this year, but he was the guy in this game, made a nice diving grab, quickly gets into some opportunities for yards after the catch, very involved this past weekend. So that was absolutely good to see from Ottman Bell. Yeah, it was. He's much more of a big play threat. I think you're right on with Tyler Johnson. There's some scouts that have graded him as early as a fourth-round pick. I've had him in that fifth, sixth-round area. Very good receiver, a good route runner, more, you know, your West Coast timing type of receiver, and there is a spot for those guys on an NFL roster. I just don't know that those type of guys go in the top 120 selections of the NFL draft. Altman Bell, he's just got to pick up the production. He, he has big playability. He's a guy who opponents have to guard against. He also has some uh, potential as, as a returner. He's got to pull it together. And really like uh, Claypool of uh, Notre Dame, he's just he's, he can't be spotted with that production if he wants to be a relatively early uh, draft pick. Or relatively early in the case of Altman Bell, you're looking at fourth round, maybe third round. Now another wide receiver we wanted to see this week was Antonio Gandy-Golden of Liberty. Nice stat line in a 44-34 loss. Two Rutgers, five catches, 68 yards, and one highlight reel, one-handed touchdown catch. Quick release off the line on that play. Really made a nice play in tight coverage. Had the safety coming over. Made his way into the end zone barely. Rutgers made sure to plug Damon Hayes on him after that for the rest of the game just to make sure someone was shadowing him because he's beat two other players and no one else on the Scarlet Knights defense was really able to stop him. Gandy Golden also showed the ability to be a willing blocker downfield. Had a big block down about 10, 15 yards down the field on a touchdown run. The one that put the Flames up 14-7 early in the game. Tony, what did you see from Gandy Golden this week? Yeah, I, I mean, another good performance against another, you know, Power 5 team. Syracuse, he starts off the year, six receptions for 119 yards. Rutgers, as you said, five receptions, 68 yards. And most of that came in that uh, touchdown reception, which was fantastic early in the game. Had a good game against Buffalo. Had a good game against New Mexico. I mean, consistent production, unlike Claypool of Notre Dame, a, a guy that opponents know the ball is going to him, although they've got some other weapons there at the Liberty, but they still can't stop him. Uh, Liberty could make a uh, bowl game. They were on the fringe. It was a tough loss to, to Rutgers. I think if they beat Rutgers, they were well on their way to the postseason. But we know this. We're going to see Gandy Gold in the postseason. I'd be shocked if he's not at the senior bowl, especially the way he's playing this year because he's beating expectations. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, we all say, well, you know, he's a bigger guy. He doesn't have great speed. You know, averaging 19.7 yards on 48 receptions. So, his play at the senior ball and his ability to separate or inability to separate, especially in those one-on-ones and how he runs at the combine, I think will be the determining factor as to 
whether or not he can sneak in to the initial 110 choices or whether he lands in the middle late part of the last day of the draft. Now, our last week nine review mirrors our final preview from last week's show, and that's South Florida against East Carolina, specifically Bulls linebacker Greg Reeves against Pirates tackle DeAnte Smith. Reeves, guy who's having a bounce back season after a down 2018, but as a pass rusher in this one, he was a non-factor, two tackles, a half tackle for loss, no sacks. His biggest play actually came when he dropped into coverage and picked off Holton Ollers, had a solid return, maybe about 30 yards on the play as well. And the irony of that is his struggles in 2018 came when he was asked to do more as a typical linebacker rather than a linebacker playing downhill and off the edge. So really, that play can't be a bad thing for him, right, Tony? I agree with you. It is going to help him. I don't think Reeves is going to get drafted because he never really showed uh, the progress or development that I thought he should have off of a terrific sophomore campaign. Uh I think he's going to get an invitation to the Shrine game primarily because he's some, from South Florida and they like to invite those guys there. They like to have a little bit of hometown flavor. I did watch the game and he was nowhere to be found as a pass rusher. It's good to see that he's able to make a plain space. It's an uphill battle. I'm one of the few people that have him graded. I'm one of the few people that think he could be a viable seventh or eighth linebacker at the next level and a special teams player, but he's got to, he's got to pick it up. He's got to do more than show these flashes in space and, you know, show an occasional rebound uh, from what it was two years ago. And I thought Deontay Smith played well. I mean, he's a guy who shows he's a big wide bodied guy. I, he's going to be a guard at the next level, only a junior. There's some scouts, as we said last week, who already grade him as a six-round pick. I think he's improved his play. I think he's going to be a guard. But I like the way he adjusts. He adjusts. He redirects nice. He's able to get his hands into the speed rushers and knock them from their angle of attack. Uh, good developing offensive lineman for the future. Now we'll get to our Week 10 previews in just a moment. But before we do, please support the Draft Analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. If you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch. Now, many of our recent previews have involved matchups between wide receivers and cornerbacks or wide receivers and secondaries in general. None of that really this week. And we will start in the trenches with a big SEC matchup between Georgia and Florida. Pass rushers Jabari Zuniga and Jonathan Greenard are expected to play in this game. Zuniga missed four of the past five games. Greenard missed last week. Both of them were suffering from ankle injuries. And they'll get to face off against Georgia tackles Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Wilson. Thomas is a likely first rounder in 2020. Might be the first tackle off the board. Whereas Wilson, redshirt sophomore, tons of upside though in his game. Both of these guys are excellent run blat. <clears throat> Both of these guys are excellent run blockers who will get nice tests in the passing game this week. Yeah, it's a shame that the Florida defensive ends are injured because both had been playing well, especially Greenard. I mean, he had been uh, exceeding expectations, I think, with Zaniga. He basically showed a good amount of versatility and completeness in his game. Hopefully, they'll be able to play at a high level uh, because these Georgia tackles are devastating. They are dominant. Uh, I expect Andrew Thomas to enter the draft. I'm told there's a likelihood that Isaiah Wilson enters the draft. I have Wilson graded as a potential late first rounder. If you watch that Notre Dame game, you know why. Speaking of ankle injuries, Wilson had missed, I believe, the two games prior to the Notre Dame game with ankle injuries. He sat out the first half. Notre Dame was able to exploit the uh, right side and really keep the game close in the first half. 
Wilson came in, played the second half of the game, and that was it. I mean, Notre Dame got no penetration off that right side. So, understandably, everybody concentrates on Andrew Thomas. He is a terrific athlete on the left side. Uh, I think him and Greenard is going to be a terrific matchup, especially since Greenard is a guy who is a, a pure edge rusher, and Andrew Thomas is an athletic guy who can get out and slide out and stop those edge rushers redirects and adjusts very nicely uh, and Zaniga against Isaiah Wilson Wilson's got a size advantage he's got a power advantage I, I think that Zaniga's a slightly better athlete it's going to be especially Wilson it's going to be power and size against athleticism and uh, quickness I hope we get to see both Florida defensive linemen play uh, because not only is it a good matchup but they were having really good seasons before they went down with injury now out west we have a couple big name quarterbacks who are in some interesting matchups this week We'll start with Washington's Jacob Eason against what is essentially our favorite secondary here on the draft analyst, and that's the Utah Utes featuring rising cornerback Jalen Johnson, a likely early entry into the 2020 draft, Julian Blackman at safety, and Javelin Guidry at the other corner opposite Johnson. Now Utah shut down a weak Cal passing game in a 35-0 shutout last weekend, while Eason, in a tight loss to Oregon two weeks ago, was 23 for 30 for 289 yards, and three scores. He's been a bit up and down, though, this season. His first three conference games were bad. His last two against Arizona and Oregon have been much better. Five touchdowns in that pair of games compared to just one combined in those first three conference games. Are you seeing the progress that you want to see from Easton, Tony? I think so. I mean, I don't think he's part of the conversation as one of the top quarterbacks in next year's draft if he enters just yet. But I I think where he was in week one and the way he's progressed uh, for a guy who really hasn't played much football in the past two years, I I think, uh, you know, you've got to like what you see. This is going to be a tough test. The Utah team and the Utah secondary, especially, is really starting to hit their stride. You talk about 35 nothing against California. The week prior to that, they gave up just three points to Arizona State. Game prior to that, they gave up just seven points to uh, Oregon State. Only gave up 13 points to uh, what is an explosive Washington State offense that puts up, uh, you know, points by the bushel load. So Utah seems to have been hitting their stride. We got to talk about the Utah uh, defensive line, their pass rushers, um, as well as their interior guys, because uh, they are part of the narrative. They are uh, guys that are going to get drafted somewhere, could go uh, second day, could go in the uh, middle rounds. Lakey Fotu, the defensive tackle. You know, when he's on his game, he's unstoppable. The problem for Foto is he's not always on his game. Uh, Penasini does not have the same athleticism or or quickness of Foto. He's more of a late-round pick, but he has that intensity. And then there's Bradley Anai, the defensive end, who's having a real good season. So, you know, Easton's got to watch out for that pass rush, both from the inside and the outside that the youth will bring, as well as their secondary that's playing much better and much more consistent than they were earlier in the season. This is going to be his biggest test of the year. Now, Easton's opponent from that game two weekends ago, Justin Herbert, will head to L.A. to face USC. The Trojans rank 82nd of 130 FBS teams in pass defense. They're middle of the road in the Pac-12 as well. And in that matchup with Easton, Herbert threw four touchdowns, no interceptions. On the year, 21 touchdowns and only one interception. Last weekend, though, 21 of 30, 222 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, as Oregon really rode the running game to a victory, a close win, 37-35, over Washington State. With Herbert, though, we still haven't seen that moment where he steps up in a big spot, and we've talked about this recently with Herbert. Even that game-winning drive against Washington, 
It was an eight play drive, six runs, two passes. The first play was a pass, six straight runs, and then the touchdown pass to close it. Now this game projects close. It's about a four and a half point spread as of right now in favor of Oregon. Tony, could this finally be the game where we see Justin Herbert have that signature moment? You know, I, I don't know. And, and that's why we're talking about him. You know, you mentioned the Washington game and Oregon in that game had 190 yards rushing. I think last week against uh, Washington State, they had like 300 yards rushing. When you look at Herbert this year, he's passed for more than 300 yards on just two occasions against Nevada and Montana. I mean, you want to see the guy throw for like 350 yards uh, or something crazy, you know, the way Joe Burrow's doing, the way, the way some of the other quarterbacks are doing against a quality opponent. USC is not really a quality opponent, as you pointed out, when it comes to pass defense, but they are a quality opponent in name. So you really want to see Herbert, whose his completion percentage is outstanding. His touchdown to interception ratio is outstanding, 21 TDs to one interception. He's playing mistake-free football, but you really want that glimpse to make you believe that he can be a franchise quarterback. And I don't think we've really seen that I don't know we've seen it since his sophomore season against Wyoming despite all this great physical skill as far as I'm concerned that may be okay uh because I like the guys that are accurate I like the guys that stay away from mistakes you know the Sam Darnolds who have that wow factor but don't protect the ball I think that's a problem at the next level uh so again, I, I mean, I, I just I don't think that anyone is gonna is really being wowed by Justin Herbert. I really want to see him throw up a huge game because I know he's capable of doing it. He's got the physical skills, he's got the arm, he's got it going on between the ears. It may be just the case where he just doesn't have that killer instinct. You know, people talk about his personality and he's kind of uh, kind of introverted and, and, and things like that. It may just be an extension of that. And I mean, I remember having these same exact conversations when we were looking at another Oregon quarterback who was a potential number one pick in the draft, and that was Marcus Mariota. And, you know, some guys can lead by example, and you can do that up to a certain level. I saw a quote about Mariota, and I forget where it came from, so apologies for not crediting it to whoever said this, but they said something to the effect that quiet leadership at the quarterback position can only get you so far. It can work in high school. It can work in college. It's not going to work in the NFL. You need to be a bit fiery. You need to be able to rally people around you. And you can't do that if you're a quiet, introverted type of person. We've kind of seen it play out a bit with Marcus Mariota. Hopefully, Justin Herbert doesn't suffer the same fate. But obviously, he's protected the ball well, as you mentioned. And Sam Darnold, you know, a guy that we've seen kind of crater over the past couple of weeks here with everything that's going on with the Jets. And the guy who was the first overall pick, in the draft where Marcus Mariota went number two, Jameis Winston, another guy, turned the ball over a lot in college, a real risk taker, made a lot of big time plays, but also made a lot of boneheaded mistakes. And that is translated to the NFL level as well. So if there's one thing at the quarterback position that you kind of know is going to translate, it's that a turnover prone player in college is going to most likely be a turnover prone player in the NFL. And Herbert has that going for him where he protects the football, but a lot of his numbers, his completion percentage, touchdown to interception ratio, a lot of that can be manipulated via coaching, via play calling. You can give him bunny throws. You can give him layups. You can give him short passes in the red zone that he's not making big plays through the air. He's not throwing a 50-yard touchdown every week. Yeah, he may be throwing three touchdowns a week, but if they're five yards, eight yards, seven yards, that doesn't mean he did all the work to get them down the field. 
And while that's more than fine in college and he's having an excellent season, as you said, you want to see him rip that 350-yard, three, four touchdown game where he dominates the running game, struggles a little bit, and he just picks up the team and carries them on its back. I think it's it's that fact plus – you know, he struggles to come through in the big spot. And you go back to that uh, game at the start of the season against Auburn where uh, they lost the lead. You know, he couldn't get it back for him and, and they ended up losing the game. So I, I think it's a situation where you just expect more. I, I mean, you just think that there's more in the tank. You should be getting more in the stat sheet. And you should be get, getting more in the field and you, you just you just don't. And that's it for the 93rd episode of The Draft Analyst presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. Just a reminder that all of Tony's work can be found over at profootballnetwork.com. So check out the site, look at some game previews over the next couple of days, a live blog on Saturday, all day, and weekly risers and sliders to come early next week as well. For Tony Pauline, this is Chris Trapodi. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.